Good evening. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians, what we call Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. We will be continuing our study, picking up at the end of chapter 2, continuing to work our way through Paul's words to a very troubled church in the city of Corinth. His words are also for us today. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that Paul is in the middle of an extended argument, and he has been contrasting the wisdom of this world, or fleshly wisdom, with the true wisdom of God, with spiritual wisdom, which is preeminently seen in the crucifixion, in the cross of Calvary on which Jesus Christ was nailed. And this wisdom of Christ crucified, Paul says, is the very power of God. And it's the only sure foundation upon which he could build his ministry. And he makes plain, as he makes plain earlier in this chapter. But the Corinthians have fallen for the temptation of worldliness. They were fighting and arguing and splitting over worldly estimations of what is wisdom, what is impressive, what is important. They were drawn towards rhetoric, towards eloquent teaching, towards flashy preachers. And the church was dividing over this. They thought that they were the mature ones. They had all the right doctrine. They were the ones with the genuine discernment. But the way that they were behaving actually demonstrated that they were the infants in the faith and that they had fallen for the world's wisdom, which is actually folly. And Paul then moves to contrast the foolish and the wise by contrasting the spirit, the spirit of God versus the spirit of the world. That's what we discussed last time. And Paul highlights the necessity of understanding the Holy Spirit's work. That's why we discussed why it's so important to understand who the Holy Spirit is in order that we might rightly understand what the Holy Spirit does. Paul is laying deep doctrinal foundations regarding the Spirit because he's later going to come back to that same doctrine to correct the Corinthians on their wrong views of the spiritual gifts. And that moves us to our text at the end of chapter 2 where we see the third contrast of this chapter. Paul is here juxtaposing the natural man and the spiritual man, or we could say the worldly or fleshly person and the spiritual or wise person. Let's read together our text, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Hear the word of our Lord. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to so instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's pray to begin our time. Father, of all chapters of Scripture, this one perhaps makes it most evident that if the Spirit is not here tonight, we are wasting our time. We need you to feed us. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to show us more of your truth, more of your love, more of the gospel, more of wisdom, more of Christ crucified, that we might be made holy, that we might be made more into the image of your Son every day. We ask this this night in Christ's name. Amen. 
As I mentioned a moment ago, Paul is here laying some pretty substantial theological footings, specifically regarding, in this text, the doctrine of man, or what theologians will call our theological anthropology, from the Greek word for man. It is on the doctrine of man that we will spend most of our attention tonight, and I only have two main points. We'll spend the first one looking at man in his natural state, or man as he comes into this world, and then we'll spend the remainder of the time looking at man as a believer, that is, looking at men and women as they have been enlightened to see the wisdom of God by the Holy Spirit, or given the Holy Spirit's work of illumination. And before I jump into Paul's words, I want to make a quick recommendation to you regarding the doctrine of man or theological anthropology. You could do much worse than reading Thomas Boston. He was a Puritan. He wrote a book called Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. It's very good. He talks about four different parts in the book. Man as he was in his innocence in the garden. Man as he has fallen. Man as he is saved but still living in a fallen world. And then man as he is glorified in heaven in the eternal state. Much of what I say tonight is covered a lot more thoroughly by Boston. So I want to commend it to you. Human nature in its fourfold state. So let's begin by looking at verse 14 where we see the first point. The inability of natural man. The inability of natural man. Paul says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And Paul says in this one verse three very important things about the nature of man, about how men and women are born into this world. He says first that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept them. He refuses to acknowledge them as good and true and lovely. He may have a cognitive grasp of the individual components. He may have the notitia. He has the details in his head. He understands the singular data points and maybe even the logical flow of the argumentation. But he does not accept the conclusions as valid and good things. Anything of the Spirit of God. But Paul goes on. He says that, secondly, not only does he not accept them, but the natural man considers them folly. The fallen sinful man considers the spiritual things of God to be utter foolishness. He doesn't merely misunderstand the spiritual things of God. He doesn't retain a sort of neutrality towards them. He mocks them. He derides them. He dishonors the things of God by rejecting them and rejecting the God himself. The cross is nonsense. The idea of a God-man is just silliness. It's superstition. It's myth. It's nothing. There is no neutrality in the area of spiritual things. That's why Jesus said in Matthew, 20, or Matthew 12, verse 30, you're either with me or you're against me. You can't be impartial in the realm of spiritual things. You're either spiritual, enlightened by God's Spirit to see the cross as the very glory of God, or you're fleshly, blind to the things of the Spirit, and therefore conclude that the very wisdom of God seen in the cross is actually utter foolishness. They are polar opposite positions. They have different starting points, and they have irreconcilable conclusions. There's no mediating ground. God's work on the cross is either the height of wisdom and therefore worthy of all acceptance, or it is the height of folly and therefore worthy of all rejection. And the natural man concludes in his blindness and pride that the cross is indeed the height of folly. 
But why does he do that? And Paul tells us. He says at the end of the verse, a third aspect of natural man's condition. And this is hugely significant for us to see. Paul says that the natural man is not able to understand the things of the Spirit. He's not able to grasp them. It's not as if he has entered into clear-headed, neutral, clinical analysis from a position of impartiality. That's not Paul's understanding of the natural man. That's not the Bible's understanding. The Bible teaches that every man, woman, and child, ever since Genesis 3, is born blind to the things of God. We were blind, unable to even discern the things of the Spirit. We were blinded by sin, blinded by the love of man's praise, blinded by our pride, blinded by our selfish ambition, by our lust, by our own darkness. Not only were we blind, though, we loved the blindness. We loved the darkness. We were opposed to the light. That's why Jesus said in John 3.19, the light, that is Jesus, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We wanted to be in the darkness. Man in his natural state is morally unable to perceive the light, to perceive the spiritual things of God, and thus needs God's work, His Holy Spirit, to work in his heart and to give him understanding, to illumine his darkened mind and heart if he's ever going to come to love and to accept the things of the Spirit. That's the state of fallen man. He is, number one, doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. He believes them to be folly, and he's not able to understand them. And so a couple of quick application points from us, for us from this theology of fallen man. First, we ought to have utter dependence upon the work of the Spirit in conversions rather than using, using fleshly efforts and tactics. We ought to have utter dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit in conversions rather than seeking to use fleshly efforts and tactics. I've mentioned this in other sermons, so I won't linger here too long, but Paul's arguments about the nature of wisdom and how that wisdom is revealed and how mankind exists in its fallen nature all should eliminate from our thinking the idea that we can humanly manufacture converts. People all the time slip into the temptation to try and use fleshly means to produce spiritual results. They turn to the latest marketing research or public speaking tactics or demographic surveys or advertising and marketing wisdom or whatever. They say things like, well, we've got to reach a new generation. We've got to use new tools. Preaching was fine for Paul's generation. They were used to extended public monologues, but the people we, we need to reach, the millennials and the, the Gen Z people, they're all visual. And so we need to just, just trim and cut and minimize the sermon. Let's get more video in here and clips and soundbite and drama and whatever else. Boring old preaching will never work. Preaching will drive them away. People say that all the time. New books on preaching come out every year saying, my new way to do it is going to solve all the problems. Paul would say that's rubbish. And Paul's argumentation here stands as valid for us today because his argumentation is built upon the very nature of man, the very core of who man is. See, man today thinks he's more sophisticated because he has electricity and air conditioning, but man's nature has not fundamentally changed since Genesis 
3. He was blind right after the fall. He's blind to the things of God now, and he will be blind to the things of the Spirit until God opens his eyes. And how God works to open man's eyes is through the preaching of the cross, the simple, unadorned, unembellished preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified in the place of sinners. Thus, our understanding of the nature of fallen man ought to produce within, within us utter dependence upon the work of the Spirit in conversions, rather than using worldly, fleshly tactics. Second, not only do we eschew fleshly tactics that try to manufacture conversions, but this understanding of Paul's ought to produce an utter dependence upon the work of the Spirit for evangelistic fruit. Paul's teaching here ought to produce within us utter dependence upon the work of the Spirit for evangelistic fruit. Prayerful, self-reliant, zealous, bold evangelism ought to mark the people of God. That's what we were reminded of last week at the missions conference. Confidence in God's sovereign mission and His spiritual work in the hearts of His people should propel us to bold proclamation of the good news. Whether that's at work or in our neighborhood or in Timbuktu, it doesn't matter. Wherever we are called, God's electing and saving purposes and His work through Jesus on the cross to bring those purposes to fulfillment ought to be the fuel that drives us to speak warmly of the God that has saved us. You say, Christ has died for my sin. He's washed me of my anxiety. He's atoned for my laziness. He's redeemed me from enslavement to the fear of man. All of it's been done away with on the cross. What love He has shown me. What love I've tasted on the cross. Love. That's what drives us to proclaim the good news, not mere duty, not mere obligation. Love is what sustains the fires of evangelism. Love is what keeps us going when we don't see any, any immediate fruit. Love is what sustains us when we're maligned and mocked and I can love through it all because I have seen true love. And that is the God-man Jesus hanging on the cross in my place. I've been made to see the glorious love of God. And the only reason I can see that love is because the Spirit has made me able to see it. Have you seen that love? Have you tasted the true sacrificial love of Jesus that is most clearly seen in the cross? If you have, then cherish it. Meditate upon it. Linger there. Have it in your heart and before your eyes often, and you'll find it easier to speak warmly of Jesus. But if you haven't tasted of that love, then consider the cross of Jesus. How he gave up everything to save his enemies. How he laid down his life for rebels. How he did it all not to gain something that he lacked, but simply because of the benevolent goodness and love that was in him and overflowed to his bride. Think about that love and call out to God to reveal more of that love to you. Come and sit at the feet of the cross and hear more of his love and have your heart of stone melted by his love. And your eyes illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Next, we've examined man in his natural state. Now let's look at the second point, verses 15 and 16, and see the spiritual ability of the enlightened. The spiritual ability of the enlightened. Verse 15 says, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. A few quick words here about what Paul is saying and what he is not saying in this text. 
And then we'll spend the balance of our time looking at some very practical points of application for us. When Paul says that the spiritual person judges all things, he's not saying that we magically become omniscient when we get saved. He's merely contrasting the idea of judgment or discernment in the spiritual realm with what the natural man is unable to do. The spiritual person is qualified to discern or to judge spiritual things as opposed to the natural man who's not fit to be a judge of anything spiritual. The fallen man may be a fine judge in other areas. He may be a great brain surgeon or an engineer, but he's not fit to even be a voice at the table when it comes to spiritually discerning truth. Well, that doesn't sound very nice, Pastor. Why do you say that? Go back and listen again to the previous point. The natural man is unfit because he's unable to discern the things of the Spirit. And consequently, that's why Paul says that the spiritual person is to be judged by no one. Or we could translate it subject to no one. It doesn't mean that the believer is above criticism. It means that the believer has been given the mind of Christ, which is alien to the unbeliever. Totally foreign to him. And therefore, insofar as the mind of Christ is foreign to the unbeliever, so we too will be foreign or alien to the unbeliever. Remember Jesus' words in John 15? He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. The gulf between an unbeliever and a believer is huge. The chasm between spiritual belief and worldly inability to believe is so great that only the Spirit of God Himself can bridge the gap. But praise be to God that the Spirit has bridged that gap in us. That's the good news of the cross. Although we were dead, we were lifeless, we were hopeless, we were unable to even see the glory of God revealed in the cross. We were stuck in our sins and we were loving every minute of it, but God, But God has come, God has worked, God has redeemed, God has sent the very spirit of holiness to remove the blinders of sin and let us see the glory that's been revealed at the cross. He's let us understand and cherish the work of grace done by Christ dying in the place of sinners like me and you. And he set us on a new trajectory, a life of holiness that is guided by his own Holy Spirit. That's the good news of the cross. That's the gospel. Not that we were so great, we were so clever, we were so sharp as to figure all this out on our own. We were blind and happy about our blindness. We were unable, not even looking to find the light. Incapable of seeing God's glory right in front of us, but He acted. Praise be to God for His spiritual work of enlightening our eyes to see His glory displayed on the cross. But the Spirit's work in the life of a believer doesn't merely stop at illumination and conversion. The Holy Spirit doesn't, work, doesn't stop working in us after He reveals the wisdom of God to us. And so I'd like to spend the remainder of our time tonight thinking a little bit about what comes next. To what end, why were we enlightened by the Holy Spirit? 
Why does the Spirit reveal to us the wisdom from God? And to begin to answer that question, I can't do it fully, I'd like for you to turn in your copies of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just a few books later in the New Testament. Paul wrote this letter while he was in Corinth, which as we've discussed previously was a city full of sexual sin and perversion committed under the cover of darkness. And as we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 1, I'll read it, and I want you to take note of the connections between knowledge, what we know, what has been revealed to us, and purity, holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in, Lord Je- in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, or your holiness. But what exactly do you mean by holiness, Paul? He goes on. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, we've come to know and therefore we should be holy. God has given us his very spirit of holiness and it follows that we would grow in our holiness, that we would grow in our purity. Or to say it another way, Paul is arguing that the wisdom of God has been revealed to us, that we have come to grasp, to see, and to assent to the goodness of this wisdom and therefore we ought to live consistent with that wisdom. We ought to be pure and holy. And he specifically ties it to sexual purity. Which doesn't surprise me, given the issues that he's seen at Corinth. This is the will of God for you, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Control your own body in holiness and in honor. Don't be like the Gentiles, given to the passion of their lust. We'll cover this topic more fully in the coming chapters of 1 Corinthians, but the point is worth making here too. People filled with the Holy Spirit ought not be engaged in unholy things. This was an unpopular message in Paul's day, and it's equally unpopular today. But sexual activity is only holy when it's done within the bounds of a monogamous, heterosexual marriage covenant. And today, all those adjectives are necessary. I read an article this week that said that one out of every six people, one in six, born between 1997 and 2002, identifies as something other than uh, heterosexual. Other than heterosexual. One in six. That's a huge number. And we cannot, as the church, equivocate on the issue of sexual immorality. It is not cute to be a little bisexual. But that's trendy these days. It's not exotic and exciting to have a little bit of experimentation. Homosexuality or sexual immorality of any kind is absolute sin. The Bible does not equivocate on this issue. There are no questions about it. And churches all around are caving on this issue. And parents are failing their children on this issue. But we must be clear. Sexual sin is wicked and despicable before God. And it will ruin your life here as well. 
It's the path of death. That's why Paul makes it very clear later in 1 Corinthians. He says the sexually immoral, the adulterers, and those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. They'll be outside of God's kingdom. We have been called to be holy, to keep our bodies pure. And believer, if you are dabbling in sexual sin, then be warned, you are dabbling with death. Cut it off and run, run far. Get help. Confess your sin to God and flee the temptation. Keep your feet far from the path of lady folly, Proverbs says. And stay close to the wife of your youth. Holiness, purity, abstaining from sexual immorality. This is the will of God for you. There's no question about it. That's a big part of why God has revealed His wisdom to you by His Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a spiritual person, to be a wise person. Someone who understands the wisdom of the cross and lives consistently with it will be pure, will be holy. To be spiritual, to be wise, is to be pure. Which leads also to a related passage in the book of James. James says something similar about godly wisdom. If you remember James chapter 3, what, he, what does he say about heavenly wisdom or godly wisdom? He says the wisdom from above is first of all pure. Sounds very Pauline. But James continues. The wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. Peaceable. We could translate it perhaps peace-loving. Heavenly wisdom produces within a believer a winsome amicableness. Not a fighter. Not a brawler. Not pugilistic. Not always hunting for the next fight or the next debate. Not always at the center of some kind of controversy. Heavenly wisdom is the opposite of what Paul warns about in Titus chapter 3, verse 9. He says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. See, this kind of foolish person is always seeming to be arguing and debating and investigating whatever is in front of them. And whatever is in front of them always seems to be, at best, of secondary importance. In the church, they are the leading expert on their particular pet doctrine. They're always looking to fight somebody about the doctrine of election. Or they're always trying to correct somebody's eschatology. You've probably seen how this kind of person can be tempted towards conspiracy theories. Paul had them in his day. That's why he said, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and quarrels about the law. You can hear them, right? First, you take this passage in Malachi and you compare that with 1 Kings over here and you divide that by the number of households in Genesis 4 and then that you take the square root and carry the two and get over to Revelation 7 and that tells you the mark of the beast is this, right? That stuff happens today all the time and it sells books. That's why people do it. It's at best a distraction. To tie together Paul and James on wisdom, heavenly wisdom is peaceable. And it's peaceable because it's focused on the cross, which is the preeminent peacemaking event. It's not distracted by everything else. And if you notice those discussions of people quarreling over secondary and tertiary level things, they're never talking about the cross and sin, and atonement, and death, and forgiveness, and justification. They're far from that. And so their discussions end up being what Paul says, unprofitable and worthless. 
But that's a real temptation for us, is to be not peaceable, to be quarrelsome, to be divisive. Maybe it's a pet doctrine, maybe it's politics, maybe it's masks and vaccines, maybe it's education and homeschooling. Whatever your hot-button issue of choice is, if it has distracted you from the cross and it has prevented you from being a peacemaker, then you've missed the point. So let me land this plane back in 1 Corinthians. Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 have been occasioned by the Corinthian church being unholy and being divisive. Which is the opposite of heavenly wisdom, James and Paul would say. They've been fools. They have not been pure. They have not been peaceable. They are thus demonstrating their foolishness. They have not been acting as if they were filled with heavenly wisdom. And the church is suffering because of it. The reputation of the church in the name of Christ was assuredly being tarnished in the community of Corinth. And brothers and sisters, we have to be ever on guard against such temptations ourselves. Our church, our relationships, our marriages, all of them are separated from disunity and peril by just a little bit of worldliness on our part. Just a little bit of pride a little bit of tolerating sexual sin, a little bit of a quarrelsome spirit, and we're headed down the road that the Corinthians were down. We're acting worldly and destructive. And so may God ever help us walk in the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and walking in heavenly wisdom, united in the mind of Christ because we have seen true wisdom. Somebody dying in the place of someone else. Somebody hanging on the cross for us. That's true wisdom and love. That's what peacemaking looks like. Being willing to die. Not dominating. Not arguing. Not seeking to have our own way. But dying for the sake of someone else. And so we will conclude our time tonight by visibly reminding ourselves of God's holy and peacemaking act on the cross. The simple message of the cross. We have at the table before us tonight the elements of the bread and the cup, pictures of His body and His blood. His body was broken for our sins and His blood was shed for our forgiveness. This is the foundation. This is the simple gospel, the gospel upon which Paul built his ministry, the gospel upon which we build our lives, and the simple gospel that the Holy Spirit has used to make us wise, to make us holy and pure. Admittance to this table is restricted by Scripture to those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. If this describes you, if you're like the disciples in Acts 2, devoted to apostolic teaching now found in God's Word, devoted to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers, then we invite you to come. If you've not come to faith and followed in obedience to Christ by being baptized, then let these plates pass. Come first to Jesus. Come to the cross. And then you may join us at the table. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, we ask that you would take these simple pictures, these physical reminders, and that you would build us up. That you would remind us of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. How he has done everything. He's met all the demands of the law for us. And all we have to do is come and believe. Come to the table and dine to feast on him by faith. Lord, we ask that you would move and you would work and do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Table servants, please come.